0: Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst, reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time.
1: Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has four years of law enforcement analysis experience all with Riverside County Sheriff's Office in California. Her career has gone from working at NASCAR to analyzing human trafficking. Here to talk about, among other things, open source intelligence, please welcome Christine Talley. Christine, how are we doing?
0: Good morning, Jason. I'm doing great. How are you?
1: I am doing well. How is things in California these days?
0: They are excellent. I tell you what, it's about probably 85 degrees. We're moving into fall. Um, Just a fantastic day here.
1: Excellent. So how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession?
0: Oh, Jason, how long do we have? (laughs) I started out, you know, Vanderbilt University. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I was originally going to be a journalist, so I was going to major in political studies. That lasted for about a semester. Then I thought I'd move into computer science, and that lasted for about a semester. So I ended up graduating, actually, with a degree in communication studies which is an interdisciplinary degree in communications, psychology, sociology. Just before graduation, unfortunately, had a personal loss. So before that, I had planned on actually applying for the Secret Service. So this is kind of a path that I had thought about a long time ago. But with that loss, I kind of went a little bit off track. So just basically started looking for jobs right out of school and ended up moving down to Daytona Beach, Florida. Started working at NASCAR as a special events coordinator and did that for a couple of years in that time I married my husband and we started thinking about kids and I just decided that I couldn't keep up with the amount of travel that I was having to do so I had had the opportunity to work with the graphic designers at NASCAR on some of our events and decided I wanted to be a graphic designer So I went back to school and started a freelance career as a graphic designer, had a couple kids, took a break from that, actually, and worked at a children's advocacy center in Daytona Beach. I was their development officer. So I was working on you know, public relations and fundraising during that time to help these children who were suffering from child abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. After that, I I did go back into graphic design and and did that, again, as a freelancer for, for about 10 to 15 years. And eventually, during that time, I started getting pretty unhappy with my job. I was, you know, working alone. I was not seeking out opportunities to learn more and train and find new ideas and get inspiration. And and so it just got to the point where I just decided I didn't want to be a graphic designer anymore. But during that time, because I was working from home, I had time to to do things for the community. I actually, well, it's a little strange. One night, I was home alone with my two kids. And I was asleep, and I woke up thinking that I had heard somebody in the house, which is the, the most terrifying thing that I think any parent can go through. So I, I lay there in bed, and I'm trying to figure, you know, what am I going to do if somebody's in here? And I had a I had a glass lamp next to me on the, on the nightstand, so I thought, well, if somebody comes in here, I'm just going to smash them in the head. Fortunately, there was nobody in my house that night, but the next morning I woke up and, and realized that I, I really needed to do something to protect my family's safety. And I had been very anti-firearm prior to that, but decided that it was something that we needed to consider. But if we were going to do that, I was going to learn everything about it. So I ended up taking a lot of training, firearms training, and, and that led to me actually being an instructor, an NRA instructor and a well-armed woman instructor to teach women about firearms, how to be safe around firearms, how to clear a firearm, you know, and then all aspects of personal safety. So that I really got back into the the personal safety aspect at that point, and and had also started our neighborhood watch in our community. Now, what I realized doing both of those things is that everyone is very concerned about their personal safety when something happens. I mean, that's what happened to me, right? So everyone's concerned when something actually happens, but we don't necessarily take the steps to really harden ourselves as targets. So I found that five people would come to a neighborhood watch meeting, but as soon as some vehicle burglaries happened in the neighborhood, well, everybody's on next door talking about where are the police and where's security and who's doing something to stop this. And then as a firearms instructor, I found that women who – who knew we needed to take our personal security very safely, you know, no matter what kind of avenue we decided to go down, we couldn't bring ourselves to take a Saturday away from our responsibilities and our families and all those things in order to to get training. And so it started getting frustrating for me to realize that it was difficult to get people to think about their safety before something happened instead of afterward. So during that time, this is when I'm having my career crisis. I don't know what I want to do with the rest of my life. And, and I'm thinking about these issues about security and safety. And, and so I started to think, you know what, I, I wanted to go in law enforcement 20 years ago. I was probably a little too old and out of shape to go to the academy at that point. So I just started looking at different careers where I could be involved in law enforcement. I could find ways to stop crime, to get at the root of crime. And I had taken a personality test. It's called the 16 personalities test. And it was extremely interesting to me. It, You know, after you answer all of these questions, it it put me in this category called advocate. And in this category, you know, advocates are obviously very concerned about things that are happening in our society and getting to the root of these issues. And I discovered that I really just wanted to get to the point where I could help fix our problems. and And maybe that would help people not have to be, rescued or saved if we can actually get to the issue. So doing all this research and the law enforcement and and what I might be interested in Doing a lot of googling, I, I found this crime analysis career that I had never heard of before, which was um, eye opening for me. So I looked around you know, trying to find programs, programs that I could afford that I that I had time for with everything I had going on. and I was fortunate enough that the University of California Riverside, the Extension school, had the crime and analysis and intelligence analysis certification program. So I thought, well, I, I'll just start. I'll take a class, and I'll see what I think and, and, and see if I enjoy it. So that first class I took was criminal law, and what an incredible class to jump into. My instructor did try to get me to go to law school at that point, and I'm like, you know what, I'm not looking to go into that much debt at this point in my life, but thank you very much. So continue to move through the program, and, and one of the next classes I took was um computer skills for the analyst, and that's where I met Brian Gray. So my very first class with him, very first day, he let us know that we were going to be going over Photoshop skills for the next day and a half, (laughs) and I thought, oh, my God, I'm trying to run away from graphic design. What are you doing dragging me back in? So I went up to him after class, and I tried to tell him, I'm like, Brian, I went to college. I didn't know what I wanted, and then I had a job at NASCAR, and then I worked in graphic design, and then I did you know, the children's advocate, I'm, I'm all over the place, right? And I and I feel like I'm this flighty person who just can't make up her mind about what she wants to do with her life. And Brian was just so amazing and really set my head on straight with that conversation and just let me know that these the different skills that I've had, you know, at, at NASCAR I worked with, I worked in hospitality. So I was dealing with everybody from race fans, right, all the way up to the CEOs of of Gatorade and coca cola and and all different kinds of fortune five hundred companies and and being able to work with a variety of people and then working in the children's advocacy center and seeing the issues that we face every single day, and then the graphic design degree, which has done nothing but but helped me in this job that I do now, so I'm so thankful for that conversation because it really helped me understand that i I wasn't just jumping into just another career i was I was actually taking things. That I already knew and applying them to this, this new passion that I felt like I, I had. So just moving forward with, with that conversation with Brian and continuing the program, I was able to get an internship with the Riverside County Sheriff's Department, got to work directly with Brian and with Chris Mason. And then, and shortly into my internship, I did get hired as the administrative analyst. So at that point, I think Brian may have had dreams of me, you know, continuing into admin and serving in that way. You know, it's not the sexiest position when you think about going into intelligence analysis. But I learned so much from him and and started to get this little bit of interest in open source during that time. So he really kind of encouraged that as we were moving forward and then at one point we had an opening in the with the human trafficking task force it had been open for a few months and and needed to get filled so i was asked if i'd be willing to go back there and the funny thing is i i sit there and i think about the conversation that i had with the lieutenant at the time and he says do you think you can handle this topic you know these things that you're going to see and of course i had no concept of of what <laughs> of what i was going to see or do or and i'm like yeah I, I i think i can handle that i'm like i don't think i want to go to homicide if that's what you're asking so just got placed back there and and it was really and and I, this may be a cliche and i'm sure other people have heard me say it but it was it was baptism by fire really at that point i had only been on the job for 6 months uh, as an analyst coming into a complete change of career never have been been in law enforcement before and, and having to jump in and, and work with these, you know, deputies and investigators on these cases where we talk about, the things that I that I had learned, you know, along the way, as far as the databases we have access to, and and how to find warrants and probation and parole and and look at vehicles and that kind of thing. But all of these things, while helpful, of course, in investigating human trafficking, I really had to grow. I had to grow at that time and, and grow and understand that open source is really the way I needed to head as far as the next learning objective I had to have. So had the opportunity to take some amazing classes and and meet some amazing people along the way that have really pushed me into different areas of this field. All right. Fantastic.
1: That's very good from beginning to end, uh, taking us through all that. A couple of follow-up questions. Yeah. I find it fascinating how people's journey to becoming an analyst. Mm -hmm. And I find it funny That law enforcement is one of those professions where I actually question whether you should study criminal justice in undergrad. Studying something in like business or computer science or even communications, it seems like it's going to have a better return on investment for you than actually studying criminal justice. So I want to ask two questions. Number one, how has the communication skills that you develop both through your degree and with your time at NASCAR, how has that helped you become a good analyst?
0: That's, it's been, I think, a huge part of the relationships I think that I've been able to build within the department. Again, coming in without this background, without this concept of the culture, and again, understanding the topic itself, it has helped me so much to understand that the message, whatever message I have to provide, whether it's some sort of intel summary on a subject, or whether it's going in and having to to talk to the captain a, a, about, you know, a case that we're working on, you have to understand how to present your message to different audiences. And that that's really something that I learned, you know, not only through my degree, but also, again, working with NASCAR and, and just understanding that crafting your message, different groups of people need to hear different things. And they need to be it have it presented in different ways and so just understanding really that you have to craft your message to meet your audience I think is the most important part of this so as far as law enforcement you know are, are we sending out a message to patrol you know what that what's that message going to be are we are we looking for a missing girl what do they need to know in order to help us with that side of it or um you know is there a message going out to the public i've i've worked with our our social media the human trafficking task force's social media what sort of things are we sending out to the public and how are those messages crafted or again moving up the chain and and the kind of things that you need to present to a sergeant or a lieutenant or a captain or quite frankly the sheriff at that time so All of that education along the way, the skills needed, and, again, even public speaking, I am still that person that gets incredibly nervous having to get up in front of a group, even with all of the opportunities I've had to speak. And even right now, shoot, Jason, I'm sweating right now. (laughs) You know, but but the more you do it, the better you get at it. And it's just, again, that, that crafting of the message is the most important thing.
1: Yeah, well, you certainly can't tell that you're nervous just to let (laughs) you know that. Thank you. In terms of communication, what advice would you have for maybe new analysts coming in and with all that they have to learn about the job of being at a police department and learning the skills necessary?
0: Yeah, I think that the hardest thing that I had to learn really is to, to be an advocate for my profession be an advocate for my skills and be an advocate through those things for this mission that we're trying to accomplish. So I come in and and, and I assume that people knew what I could do. Heck, I, I wasn't even sure what I could do. But I assumed that they knew uh, you know, what, what I was supposed to do for them. And and the problem with that is, is by keeping those things to yourself, by maybe saying to yourself, you know what, they didn't ask me to, I don't know, load this Celebrate dump into my call detail records analysis software. They didn't ask me to do that. So I'm just not going to do it. Well, guess what? They may not know that you can do that. They may not have an idea of some of the things that you can do. So. Really, just being a an advocate for what you can do, what you can accomplish, offering suggestions, offering you know creative and actionable work products that they may not even know that they need, and seeing if those are things that can help all of us achieve this mission of stopping this crime is is something that I've really had to learn along the way. In fact, I'm still learning it, you know it's it's something that's even come up recently where one of my own investigators was surprised by something that I could do, and I thought, oh no. I can't believe that I never told you that I could do this for you. So really just being, communicating our abilities, the ways that we can help, and being creative in those suggestions is one of the best things that I can suggest for new analysts.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up Brian Gray because that's the second question yes. I, I want to ask you. Because he teaches and harps on uh, better by design and teaches a class is usually at the conferences about better by design and looking for the best way of marketing and making your product look the best you mentioned the message that you're trying to send Mm -hmm. and so that's another skill that really helped you get into this profession because there's obviously analysts are asked to either put out written reports, or they're asked to put together PowerPoint presentations. I've seen analysts run CompStat meetings. Mm-hmm. And so, in I guess in terms of graphic design, do you have either certain advice that you like to give, or is there, maybe even there's like certain pet peeves, like when you see something that... <laughs> breaks an unwritten rule in the graphic design role that you've seen in law enforcement. Is there anything like that that comes to mind?
0: Yeah, well, I, just talking about Brian and going back to graphic design, and, and I love the fact that that is part of the training in the program, is understanding how to create things visually, that are not only appealing, which will help them get read, but also help provide the information in a way that can easily be understood just based on flow, based on font choice and font size. These are all things that that I think all of us as humans, we know when something looks good to us but may not be able to articulate why or may not be able to apply that to our own work product. So it's a just the design of something and and understanding the tools to use in order to get that done. So you know a pet peeve of mine as a graphic designer is is using the correct tools. So Photoshop itself, Photoshop is an image-based program and and so what it should really be used for is for photographs and editing of those photographs, whether it's cropping or adjusting you know brightness and or zooming in whatever it may be it's really meant for photographs and then illustrator is actually meant for vector based images so if you're looking at any kind of logo design or illustrations that's really the program you want to use for that but then indesign itself adobe indesign is a page layout program and that's what i use to build any of my work products that I'm going to be passing along. And the important thing about that is is InDesign is kind of the way to bring all of these pieces together. So you may be bringing in your photos that you edited in Photoshop. You may be bringing in that logo that you created in Illustrator. And then you're putting in your text within InDesign and really creating your your product within there in order to make sure that just visually everything lines up or that your text is flowing the way that you wanna flow. So just understanding the basics of these programs, how you can create a visually appealing work product. And that's how things are going to get read, right? I I honestly believe we can put together some incredible intel or incredible information, but if it's not visually appealing or easily read or easily digested, it's gonna get tossed in that circular file. So we wanna make sure that the things that we're putting out are that get read by by patrol or command staff Mm -hmm.
1: this reminds me of a conversation i once had with an analyst at cincinnati police department because he was similar i think he studied graphic design in college and ended up becoming an officer at cincinnati police department and then was an assigned sworn analyst there and so he came in and he Put together these PowerPoint presentations that the colors just all mended together, and it made right? the other analysts step up their game because yes. they tried <laughs> to catch up to him. And one of his big things was spacing, yes. and and he said on along the edges, and he said most people don't realize that there's just like this no-go zone. Especially like in a PowerPoint slide that there's just along the edges there. You don't want to have anything out there in that space. And
0: definitely i mean if you put you put together even just test it out yourself you know create something even just i don't know throw some pictures and some copy on a letterhead sheet and use a, a a quarter inch margin and print that out and then go ahead and use that half inch margin and adjust your spacing on everything and then take a look at it you know look at your spacing between your columns of text or the spacing between your photographs and your and, and your text on your document and change them up a little bit, add a little more white space. It's really the white space, the space where there is nothing, that helps us visually take in a document. And when, when there is not enough white space, it bothers our eyes, it bothers our brains, and we cannot digest the information that's included in there. Yeah. Hmm.
1: And then, So I want to get to the point where you're walking into the police department the first time, and because by this point, I'm I'm actually going to do something that probably a guy shouldn't do. You're in your forties, <laughs> right? Yes, like you're you're the forty year old analyst. Go for it. Thing, I'm proud right? of it. <laughs> so okay, good. Thank you. Because it's always it's always awkward, you know. Okay, well, things.
0: but hold on, Jason. That better not be the title of my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it probably would have been forty year old analyst. <laughs>
1: yeah, would have been until you said it. You know, said no. So take us to that point where you're walking in, you've had past career up to this point, and certainly there's all these different anxieties, different feelings. What are you thinking about as you're walking in? to the police department to, to be an analyst for the
0: first time? Well, first of all, I'm walking in feeling like, you know, I may be 40 years old and wake up in the morning with my back hurting and all, <laughs> and all those things, but I'm walking in feeling like a brand new college graduate and I'm 20 years old again. And it's a lot of anxiety. And, it, and again, walking into a culture that you have no experience in, walking into a job where They expect you to obviously have some skills, right, before you even get in there. But as a student, we have to learn things conceptually. We don't have the opportunity to get into whatever databases and programs and and things that our departments may use. And so we don't know yet how to Query data within those particular systems, or, or what kind of things our command staff are going to expect from us. So there is a lot of anxiety walking into that position. I think the biggest anxiety I had, really, when I started the job, I knew I was going to work for Brian Gray, and that was great. I already had a relationship with him as a student teacher, and and I knew that I was excited, scared, but excited. I'm I'm about to learn so much from the master, right? I think the biggest anxiety-inducing part is when I got transferred into trafficking, and and because I I just had no concept of what I was walking into, and, and that's where I decided, all right, you need to put on your big girl pants, and you need to walk in with a little bit of an air that you know what you're doing, because obviously you don't want your team right off the bat to think that you are, you know, clueless, but also with the humility of saying, I need to learn from you, and I want to learn from you, and I need you to Fill me in, you know, and and I asked probably the stupidest questions. I probably for a year. I I wouldn't be surprised. And I we're all like in a little cubicle farm in a, in a back office, and and I would just holler them out. And I sometimes I had to ask the craziest questions, you know, when you're talking about human trafficking. But having that humility that I don't know everything. Mm-hmm. and but i want to know everything so it's it's one of those things where you need again you got to walk in with a little bit of confidence some confidence in yourself in the training that you've received, in the life experience that you have, whatever that may be, and, but also being willing to learn and really just opening yourself up and, and being vulnerable in that way.
1: Yeah. And I think it's hard. We do that to ourselves where for some reason where we expect us to be great from the get go. And wow. this idea that you're supposed to know all these things or you're never supposed to misstep or you're never supposed to make a mistake or mm-hmm. or anything like that. And, and really what it comes down to is a willingness to acknowledge that you don't know, but you are willing to learn and wanting to work to gain knowledge. And I yes. think that's really where all the riches are and it's all the other stuff about anxiety and worrying about that other stuff. You can't, you can't let that cripple you.
0: No, you can't. And that's and that's if I could give another piece of advice, it would be to take notes on everything. That's one of the huge things that I do anytime I'm whether it's learning something new or or I've asked a question or I've made a mistake and there's something that I need to learn from that, it gets written down. And it will not happen again, you know, as as far as I'm concerned. One of the, I think one of the funniest mistakes I ever made, and it's something you don't know until you learn it, is our team was going out on surveillance, and they had an individual. I had to find an address to look for them. And I, I gave my sergeant and my deputy this address for them to go to that was in another jurisdiction. So they get all the way over there. And I got a text that says, Christine, you sent us to a mailboxes, et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> so I it it didn't say P.O. box or it's it, said, you know, it, it looked like an apartment to me. Oh, so yeah. that mistake never happened again. I, <laughs> I gave them a, an apology note. It had to be handmade because there's no greeting card that you can that you can buy for that and some candy. But that's the kind of thing you you're gonna make these mistakes. But the key is just to make sure that you learn from them the first time. Mm-hmm. And then that way, you earn the respect of your people that way. Does it suck making a mistake? Absolutely. But when they know that you've got it and it's not going to happen again and that they can trust you, that's that's worth its weight in gold.
1: Yeah. I think so. Okay. When you're talking about human trafficking, is there certain cases or a certain definition that you all go by?
0: Yeah, we're, when we're talking about human trafficking, it, it a lot of times gets confused with human smuggling, which is a lot of problems that we come across as far as communication with the public. And then there's also a lot of crossover with child exploitation and in its variety of forms. But when we're talking about human trafficking itself, that is the use of force, force, fear, fraud, or coercion in order to utilize a person for a labor act or a commercial sex act that you then get a benefit from in some way, shape, or form. So trafficking is really focused on that force, fear, fraud, or coercion. There doesn't need to be movement of somebody. That's really where we're coming into smuggling, you know, movement of somebody across borders. That doesn't have to happen for trafficking. And then trafficking also is defined as far as minors are concerned, as far as juveniles are concerned. You don't have to have those elements of force, fear, fraud, or coercion. Just the simple act of pimping, pandering a minor does become human trafficking. I find it
1: interesting and I think it's frustrating too. It it makes me believe that some of these concepts just need to be rebranded going back to our marketing and message talk, because I think when people hear the words human trafficking, they automatically go to what I think you've referred referred to as human smuggling. Right. You're talking about some uh, foreign entities being smuggled into the country and being in order to pay off their debt for getting here to the United States they become slave workers. I th- I think that do you, I well let me not assume that. Do you agree with me that that's I think what most people think of when they hear the term human trafficking?
0: There yeah, and and part of the part of the thing is that a criminal act of smuggling can turn into the criminal act of trafficking. Mm-hmm. You know, it does become the point of where there's that that debt bondage or that labor trafficking that's involved in order to pay off any sort of of debts, you know, but technically they are two separate crimes. and, And you can have one without the other, but that's not to say that there isn't any overlap. And I think a lot of that comes with our own messaging too. You know, it's difficult when we're talking about trafficking. And first of all, I'd love for anybody to try to go to a stock photo site and type in the words human trafficking and see the kind of images that you get, right? So we have to put out, whether it's social media posts or press releases or whatever it is, and of course images are somewhat important because they grab the reader's attention, but trying to find a correct image to use for these crimes is nearly impossible because you're going to get back results of women tied up or stuck in a corner of a dungeon or whatever it may be, you know, with the, the hand over the face, you know, all those kind of things. And, and those images actually do a disservice, I think, to the victims because it's just not what human trafficking looks like. Human traffic is, again, really the use of that, that force, that fear, you know, or labor trafficking. It's where you're taking people's papers, their passports or whatever it may be, and not allowing them to move freely. So I, I tell you, we're not finding – now, again, don't get me wrong. There are those rare cases where it happens, but our victims are not – tied up in dungeons. They're not tied up in people's basements. They're they're out. They're they're working on blades, which are, are the streets where, where prostitution occurs. They are working online. They're you know advertising on escort sites. They are they're going to salons and getting their hairs and hair and nails done. They're they're out going to restaurants or they're out at hotels. They're so this messaging that we need to get across it, it with using images, with using our vocabulary is extremely, extremely important. And I'll take a little sidestep here, but there's a huge push for this right now, and in fact I'll get up on a soapbox. There's a huge push right now for this renaming of child pornography. It is not child pornography. There There is no freedom of the children to participate in this act. So there is actually a huge push right now for a redefinition of this to be called child sexual abuse materials, or CSAM for short. So you may actually, if you're on LinkedIn or on Twitter, you may see actually petitions for this wording to be changed. You're gonna see us contacting our local media and asking them to stop using the words child pornography, asking my own patrol, my own investigators to stop calling it CP because that's not what it is. So it is important for us to, again, communication, be clear in our messaging, be clear with the vocabulary that we're using and the images that we're using.
1: Hello, this is Brian Gray, and my advice for analysts is don't settle for mediocrity. If you want to be happy in this career, long-term, you can't be a minimalist. Just don't do what you're asked for. Do what you know is right. And don't ever, ever substitute quantity for quality. And if you haven't found a way to put design to work for you, you're not doing your best work.
0: Hey, this is Mary Craig. My public service announcement for the listeners is irregardless is not a word it may have been recognized by webster's dictionary in 2020 but it is still not a word it's regardless
1: let's get into a couple of stories then what i call analyst badge stories here of course you, you start in 2018 and you, you get these cases right away so right. let's just you know start with the first one and then we'll go through each one of your stories here
0: yeah. Yeah. This was, again, this was the part that was giving me the sweats, Jason, because, you know, it's, it's again, relatively new analyst, short, you know, not still a newbie, I think. I don't think they stopped calling you a rookie for at least five years or so, but, you know, so we get right into these cases. And the thing about human trafficking investigations is not only do the investigations themselves take a long time, but but one thing I learned is that the judicial process takes a long time. So, I was trying to come up with my bad stories, and, and I have had a hand in hundreds of cases, but trying to come up with those stories, so I'm racking my brain. And, and the, the cool thing was I have I have an investigator. His name is Damon Vitvitas, and he loves to brag on me for this one case. And I thought, well, if he brags on me, then this is a great story for me to tell. Yeah. Our deputies had a, a traffic stop. And when they did this traffic stop, there was a male and female in the car, and they noticed visual injuries on the female's face and, and her body. So they start talking to these guys, and ended up they ended up going in. They found a gun in the car. They found a cell phone in the car with messages popping up, notifications about arranging dates. And and that's generally what people call this when they hire someone to come. They call it a date, right? And Mm -hmm. so they're seeing these messages. And fortunately, these deputies had paid attention and and got some training and and understood what this was really pointing to. So our team actually ended up calling out. Damon got called out and sent over to just start investigating this case. So... During his interview with the victim, and, and Damon, I love Damon because he's so great, so skilled at talking to these victims, he was able to get her story. And the story that she told us is that the suspect, the trafficker, had had picked her up in, in Phoenix. And had taken her from Phoenix and brought her into Ontario, California, which is up in in San Bernardino County, not too far from us. And they had stayed in a hotel there. Then the trafficker ended up taking her to Figueroa Boulevard in Los Angeles, which is a very notorious blade in our area, and she was forced to work on Figueroa, and after that, you know, they went back up through Ontario. She had to do some other dates in in the Inland Empire, which is kind of our region here in Southern California, and so this is the story that she told us, but the reason I love this is that, so the trafficker gets arrested, and he was basically, his defense is that they came into town, and she dropped him off at one of the casino resorts, and then she went on and did whatever it was that she did. He didn't know. wasn't his problem. He had nothing to do with it. The unfortunate part for him is that we had call detail records on his phone and the victim's phone and the work phone, you know, the one that they used for their quote-unquote business in order to arrange these dates, and so... Looking at these phones and, and doing the cell phone analysis on all three of these, I was able to show, I mean, I, I don't even know, I don't even want to give myself that much credit because the data was there, right? And mm-hmm. I, we showed all three phones going from Phoenix going to Ontario, hitting a tower that hit the hotel that the victim had told us about, then going and actually physically, all three phones physically being on Figueroa Boulevard in in Los Angeles. So to be able to put that together, and, and, and up until that point, the suspect was actually planning on fighting all of these charges he was going to take this to a jury trial he was absolutely adamant that he was innocent right mm-hmm. but then they turned over the the cell phone analysis and one look at at what those records showed he ended up deciding to take that plea deal which was fantastic so He ended up taking a deal, I think he got about seven years and eight months for pimping, pandering, and domestic violence. So we were super proud about that case, and I'm I'm so thankful because, you know, one of my main objectives is to corroborate the victims. To do that, obviously not only to make sure that this investigation is warranted, right, but – but also at some point, once we get through it, in order to present this as evidence at a trial. So just the fact that those records were able to corroborate her story to a T really helped out in that case. So that's, that's one of my favorites.
1: So the analysis that was handed over to the defense, it's not just merely you were sending the CDRs over there. Did you create a package, a, a report that, that went along with that?
0: There, yeah, there was a, a finalized report that I did give the investigator, and I assume that along with the original records, I assume that that has to be part of the discovery. So, yeah, once once they saw that, that was pretty much it for deciding to try and take that to a jury trial.
1: Yeah, that's, that's fascinating, and it is, mm-hmm. from what I hear, a lot of the problems with trying to get these – Human trafficking cases off the ground is just getting the cooperation from the victim. Yeah, it's it's
0: it's, yeah, it's funny you should bring that up because that unfortunately was was the reason why we couldn't get a trafficking charge on that guy. From what I understand, we ended up I I guess losing the victim at one point. She did not continue communication, so we were unable to get that trafficking charge on him. But you know you can't blame these girls either at all. I'm sorry, I said girls, but we have we have male trafficking victims as well. You. can't blame these victims, you know, all of this trauma that they've gone through. Now they get to this point where they have to possibly stand up against the person who has victimized them for so long, possibly with, you know, verbal and physical abuse or with drugs to to, to do this. And it, i can't imagine what it takes in order to to finally come to that point so certainly don't blame the victims at all for possibly walking away from these cases do we want them to see it through absolutely because we would love to see these guys spend as much time in in prison as they should but at the same time we will go through and we will prove these cases any way we can yeah Hmm. and i think
1: the other case that you mentioned that you wanted to talk about was that the Fourth of July case, or is was yeah. our case before that?
0: Yeah, no, that was it. That was okay. the Fourth of July case. Yeah, it was. So I I volunteer in my free time because I don't know because I, I I love this stuff so much. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> I volunteer with the National Child Protection Task Force, and it is a a nonprofit organization that we are staffed with with law enforcement, with prosecutors, with with other analysts from both the public and private sector with osint and analysts as well and we basically help out with with law enforcement cases involving missing children exploited children trafficked children we'll come in as an additional resource that law enforcement agencies can can utilize in in these cases because we know agencies are 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 suffering as far as resources for technology or or even human resources, the resources we need to do these kind of cases. So we come in and help. And and I love this story. It was just this past July 4th. You know, everybody's getting ready for their day of barbecues and and enjoying the day off. And the NCPTF, we got a, a call from Detective Joe Scaramucci out of the McLennan, Texas, I'm sorry, McLennan County Sheriff's Department out of Texas. So it's July 4th. They had two teenage girls that were missing since June 30th. That was the last time they'd been seen. And that morning on July 4th, an Amber Alert had gone out for them. One of the girls had been able to, I guess, post on her Snap story. She just posted the word help. So finally an amber alert was able to go out on these girls with the understanding that yes they they are in danger they're not just runaways and and I'll talk about that again in a minute but so so Joe calls NCPTF and, and says all right let's get started so We've got a team going and and a team going to start looking at whatever intel we can find about these girls. So we do focus a lot on open source intelligence. Uh, We do have access to a lot of great technology that our sponsors provide us as well. So we just start helping Joe run down these leads. The girls had had moved apparently from city to city, had been with different people. So as Joe is on the ground getting that human intel, running from location to location with his team, he is passing this intel back to us at NC. PTF, and we're running through whatever we can find to send information back to him. So it was it was nonstop, all day long, running this intel and, and Joe going in and, and just going door to door with the stuff that we're sending him. So at around, I think about seven o'clock that night, Joe had gotten some search warrant results back, and within that, there was a phone number. And it was so interesting because it was one line within this entire result that we got back there was a phone number that had had some sort of contact with one of the girls that day. so he sends that through and and we jump on that phone number and it didn't take too long for us to put that phone number with a name and an address and Joe is getting additional Intel where he is sending him to to that same city that that we were providing. So by 10 o'clock that night Joe and his team had busted down a door. They had the suspect in custody, and they had rescued those two girls in a matter of 12 hours, which was just, I think, an incredible testament to what can happen when departments work together, when departments are willing to work with these nonprofit agencies who have access to passionate, dedicated people that also have access to technology and and skills that maybe are not available within a department. So that was just an incredible, incredible case to work on. And and I definitely have to name drop here. We had, uh, uh, with NCPTF, I was working with Kevin Metcalf who is our, our founder and CEO. Detective Kyle Nash out of the Springdale, Arkansas Police Department. He's integral at NCPTF. Nicole Beckwith, Chris Poulter, these are just incredible names within the OSINC community. J.D. Parker and Heather Lane, Kevin Tata from NCPTF, and then finally Rochelle Kehan from Collective Liberty. She's also an organization that Joe works with quite a bit. All of us, all of us, you know, giving up our 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 holiday. You know, this is stuff that we do 24-7 for our real jobs, but, but giving up a holiday and and using these skills that we have and the technology that we have access to bring these girls home. And I guess the the biggest message I have out of this case is the problem of talking about these kids as just being runaways. You know, the question becomes, if a child is not where they're supposed to be, why is that? There's a reason for that. And so, again, not just considering these kids' runaways, but if a child's not where they're supposed to be, they are in danger. They are in danger of of these people who will take advantage of them in a variety of forms. So just making sure that we're considering these cases important. Enough to apply resources to and considering them edu- exigent to bring these kids back is is important, so th- love that story because i I got to tell you i with all the work I do with my department and and believe me it's I find so much satisfaction and and truly believe that we are helping but that that one case that twelve hours mm-hmm. I have never worked never worked a case like that before never, with a team and the adrenaline and and the final resolution in such a short period of time and going to bed that night knowing those girls had been rescued from the horrible situation they were in, that's definitely my badge story right there.
1: Yeah, it's funny. That reminds me, I worked with a captain once and he really enjoyed doing the dishes because (laughs) he said he works on all these long-term projects that can take months or years to see the fruits of all your work and he said when i do the dishes (laughs) i can see in a matter of moments the the impact that i have so it reminded me of how you were describing this 12 hour period of your fourth of july of the fruits (laughs) of your labor
0: I love that. I'm going to start using that when I'm washing the dishes. I've got a new purpose now.
1: (laughs) Maybe you could trick your husband into getting the dishes. Right.
0: (laughs) That's great.
1: So when when Joe's sending you information back, so he's running down these leads and he's sending you information. Is this stuff that's like addresses people, locations, and that's when you all – putting on your analyst hat and you're researching trying to come up with additional information to either corroborate or come up with additional leads to send back to joe is that how it worked
0: yeah it was definitely like that it was you know again he's going from place to place because over the course of i guess it was five or six days these the girls had gone to a variety of places and had been with a variety of people. So as each lead that Joe is tracking down, he's getting maybe a new name or somebody who says, yeah, I drove the girls and I drove her to this address. And and so he'd send us these pieces of information. You're never going to get the whole story from these folks. He'd send us these pieces, and it was, okay, If if we have this address, who's there? Who is he about to deal with? Because he's in the car right now. Driving there, and we need to give him the intel he needs to know who he might come up against when he gets there. And uh, if phone numbers, you know, who the girls may have called or or information that he was getting back on Snapchat accounts or, or as we're getting a name of, of yeah, you know, whatever name in such and such a city and and we're now going to Instagram and Facebook and and using contact exploitation to find Snapchat accounts or or cash apps or whatever it may be to help him understand who he might be coming up against when he arrives. For me in my job and what I do, that I think is really where I find my purpose is is I want to send my investigators, my deputies into a situation with all of the information that they that i can give them that can help them understand what they're walking into not only for for their safety for the safety of the person you know that they may be coming up with but you know to to understand the story before they get there and and to try and put these pieces together for them so just being able to work with joe like that again with that human intelligence he was getting in those interviews or the some of the intelligence he was getting from, from search warrant results as as he's driving, and then us to be able to fill out that picture for him, fill in those puzzle pieces, so that he could be prepared to do what he needed to do with that next stop. That's such a great way to work, and I think that's why analysts are so critical. Just filling in, and I, I liken it to, you know, my, my Twitter handle is Athena's Owl. And the story of Athena's owl is that the the owl sits on Athena's shoulder and actually faces behind her to see into the darkness, to mm. know what's coming at her. And I feel like that's what analysts do. We're we're looking into the darkness. We're we're watching our sworn brothers and sisters. they're six and giving the information that they need to to do their job and to do it safely. Nice,
1: well done. So with this case, uh, you mentioned that there was a. The telephone number at the end, so that that was where you could connect the two telephone numbers, one of the suspect and one of the victim. How did the victims first get in contact with the suspect is it a kidnapping situation or is it just to kind of as they were popping along staying at different pl- places they just ran into the suspect
0: yeah from what i understand and i don't i don't know the whole details of the case or the or a whole lot of the outcome as far as what's going on as far as charges and everything but what i understand is that the girls had had run away and had met up with some possibly bad people in it and just at that point they just went from location to location and just went down this path of of unfortunately meeting up with different bad people along the way so it's it's my understanding that the guy that was that was finally arrested that had the girls in his custody that there there wasn't any connection between him and the girls to begin with Mm -hmm. it was just something that happened organically and and unfortunately again we're talking about runaway kids this this is kind of the thing that can happen you know it starts out as as a runaway and then just as they start meeting people along the way who do not have their best interests in mind a lot of this can be organic in the way that these stories flow
1: It's amazing to me too, because you said they went missing June 30th, right? So it's almost a week before they are found. It seems to me that it would just be a matter of days to get them out of the city and in a city where they don't know anyone and obviously can get a lot worse from there. But
0: yeah, Yeah, I think a lot of it is perception of runaways (laughs) and I'm not placing blame here anywhere but I think a lot of its perception you know we have just in Riverside County we have thousands of runaways every year Mm -hmm. that's a lot that is a lot you know for our resources to handle and and in all honesty generally runaways come back fairly quickly Mm-hmm. So it, usually, what will happen is a kid runs away, and and they may come back in a matter of hours, or they come back in the next mm-hmm. day, or or if they have a history of running away, it's it's parents or foster parents or group homes that say, you know, yeah, they run away over the weekend, they usually come back by Monday, and mm-hmm. and so it's there's not this I think sense of urgency or exigency, and and then there's also a matter sometimes I think of our our hands are tied when there is not that urgency or exigency, there is not that immediate known threat of a danger we are unable to write search warrants on phones or social media if we don't have some sort of proof that these kids are in danger so certainly not questioning why it took so long for the amber alert to go out they had unfortunately it was a matter of that snapchat that that snapchat story where one of the girls posted help and that reached I guess the level of need as far as danger and exigency in order to get the amber alert done but as much as I hate it in the way that the things I guess have to have to run it's the it's the law it's policy it's the way things are done but I I personally would prefer that every missing child is considered an exigent situation
1: yeah hm that's tough mhm but all right so all right well let's let's move on I do want to spend a portion of this interview talking about open source intelligence, because it certainly goes hand in hand with what you do every day, even on your off time, apparently, with, (laughs) with human trafficking. So let's Talk about how you use open source intelligence.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, when we when we get referrals for cases, whether they come from our Child Protective Services, whether they come from the National Human Trafficking Hotline, they come from a station, we get varying levels of information when we get those referrals. So we may know exactly who we're dealing with for a case, or we may not. We may only have a phone number or maybe an Instagram username in order to to figure out who these people are. So one thing that I learned very quickly, you know, my first day on the job, actually, I had to, to try and find a, a missing juvenile. She was at risk for human trafficking, and I was asked to see if I could figure out where she was. Well, you know, first of all, I'm dealing with a juvenile. So mm-hmm. the information that's available in our law enforcement databases, the information that's available in things like TLO, CLEAR, accurate, you know, as far as juveniles are concerned, can be very limited. So at the end of that day, I didn't come up with anything for her. I, I didn't have any suggestions as to where I could find her. And so that that was a rotten first day of work, really. I, I felt defeated and I felt like I didn't know what I was doing. But then it, within conversations and 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 talking to people about how I could branch out and how I could better serve my team, that's when we start talking more about as far as juveniles are concerned, social media, right? And and talking about Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and Cash App, all of these things that we all have on our phones, and our phones are with us in our pocket or in our hand 24-7. So we're all using these things. So the amount of information that can be found whether it's through social media whether it's through public records searching is is just incredible and and to me that information is more real time than anything else i can find you know if i can find a pimp posting on his facebook right now flashing his money talking about his stable using terminology that is indicative of human trafficking posting photographs standing in front of a vehicle standing in front of an address those are things that i can use right now to try and determine where this person is located and with open source for me it's not one or the other it's not like oh i can only use law enforcement or i can only use these paid sources or i can only use law open source intelligence to me they all link together they all come together because the the beauty of the process is that one piece of information in one source can lead to something in another source it can validate it it can verify it it can help me go down maybe a little bit of a rabbit hole to see if i can find more so i really have just been to trying to preach open source intelligence <laughs> to to law enforcement we we again technology resources the the time and the people to to go down these rabbit holes to find information we have to start making this it's a part of our job. Again, everybody's got these phones, and there is a an enormous amount of information that can be found that's going to help us within these cases.
1: Yeah, it still amazes me how much some criminals put on social media. Yes. Like, I would have thought that after maybe the 50th guy – Right. Got his probation revoked because of flashing a gun on Facebook that they would have learned, but you'd think apparently not. And but of course they're doing their own marketing and messaging too, right? That's what they're using it for. They
0: are. They are. It's one particular case that I use when I present on, I do a lot of presenting on the use of open source and, and intelligence analysis in general in human trafficking investigations. And, and one of the cases that I love to present is a, a trafficker who, when the tip came in, I I didn't know who he was at all and came up with a phone number, and that phone number led me to actually a, a victim that we didn't know about. The victim leads me to this Facebook page that never in a million years, with all the searching I could have done, would I have found if I hadn't done some of these things to lead me along this path, I find his Facebook page, and this joker is posting publicly on his Facebook multiple times a day talking about what he's doing and and photos of himself and flashing the money, flashing the cars, talking about his His girls, and one of the things a term in human trafficking is called an ism and i I don't know if I can do this enough justice, but basically an ism is the philosophy of pimping it's the the doctrine it's what it's the the knowledge of pimping that one pimp will pass to another pimp or pass mm-hmm. to his girls right about about the rules of the game and how things are done and so this guy's Facebook page was basically a a manifesto of his isms if i could put it that way and the things that he believed the way that he expected his girls to work for him and and things that he expected them to do for him it was just an incredible amount of evidence that he put publicly and and maybe he assumes he wouldn't get caught i don't know i mean i'm guessing sometimes these guys are criminals because they're stupid, I, I'm not sure. But I think part of it, again, is that marketing and messaging that you're talking about. They're doing their own marketing. They're they're trying to portray this this persona of being successful, of being at the top of their game, of having all these girls working for them and, and their money and their swag. and And that's how they get, unfortunately, more victims to work for them. If they can put across this persona that not only is the money good, and that they're going to take care of them better than maybe their current pimp, or that things are going to be better for them right now, you know, than, than hey, I'm a, I'm not going to hurt you. I love you. I, I think that you're the best at what you do, and let's do this together. That's a whole lot better than the guy that's, that's being violent with them right now, right? Mm-hmm. So with that marketing and that messaging, that's how they're – they're doing their their job attraction. I guess it's it's interesting to see how they're willing to set aside maybe some of their own operational security that they should be thinking about and balancing it with with the need to be famous for right. for what they're doing. Huh? Where where does
1: ism come from? Like. That's what, is, is, is... A, I, <laughs>
0: I mean, that's I understand the. Question. I
1: understand the concept, but I the connection is where I'm lost on is is where where that how that would have got connected to pimping.
0: That's a that's a great question, and and I don't have an answer for you. Hmm. I I try to try to do some research into some of these things that these whether it's terms or emojis or hashtags that they're using on social media I try to do research and figure out where these kind of things come from so there's some things I can explain there's some things I just can't and and so ism is one of those things but fortunately some obviously some some people who've done research on these things before me were able to share that knowledge because you know coming into this so you, you talk about ism I I would have had no idea what that meant so if somebody used that phrase um I I wouldn't have understood that that is a human trafficking indicator, right? So that's actually something that that I have known now to put in my toolbox that I need to look for.
1: Yeah. Now, do you use certain programs that are dedicated to open source intelligence or are you doing more naturally where you are, you know, log in into Facebook to get Facebook information, log in into Snapchat, get Snapchat information.
0: Yeah, it's there there are some amazing solutions out there for open source. Mm-hmm. And I have found just from my own perspective that they tend to be extremely costly. So that becomes an issue. Obviously when you're dealing with a department, whether you have one analyst or you're dealing with a department that has twenty, that can become an issue. So what I do, I do a lot of just the manual manual searching and and i like to say you know there's no easy button Mm -hmm. with open source we could have access to some of these amazing tools and again they do some great stuff fortunately again with ncptf we do have access to some of these things and i am amazed by what can be done but sometimes that that manual searching that getting your hands in there getting them dirty really Doing the step-by-step and going down those rabbit holes yourself, they're going to lead you to information that you never would have found. And so I'm, I'm fortunate with all of the training that I've had to really learn these manual skills, some of the best practices, the way to do some little Hacks. I hate to use that word hack because I'm not hacking anything. I'm not doing anything <laughs> illegal, but these, these little things that are available to anybody in the public, but you just kind of have to know how to do them. Yeah. So with that, again, that the case study that I just told you about, I, I wouldn't have found that guy using anything else other than the, the dedication and the tenacity and, and the willingness to, to jump from rabbit hole to rabbit hole. So just fortunate. And the other thing you have to think about, too, we may have access to these great tools. When, just as an example, when Facebook changed their, their whole system in 2018 and graph searching went away, analysts all over the world freaked out, you know, how are we going to be able to do what we've known how to do? And so there were some great groups that came together and tried to rebuild different ways to do these searches. The problem is when we become dependent on a tool or become dependent on a software package and for some reason that gets taken away, whether it's because of a budget or what's because the, the tool, you know, doesn't work anymore or the platform itself changed and we no longer have access to this information, What are we going to do then? So, yeah, it was great having that easy button for however long we had it. But when that all of a sudden goes away, are we prepared to jump back in and do these things manually?
1: Yeah, I I agree. So what advice do you have for maybe an analyst that is maybe in a similar situation certainly their departments not going to give him or her the software but they're maybe getting into some of this social media open source gathering mm-hmm. that you talked about what advice do you have for them
0: well there I, there are amazing trainings available all the time. And I, I look for a lot of the ones that are free, right? So mm-hmm. I don't have to keep going back and asking my department for more money. There are great trainings that are available, whether they're in-person trainings or they're virtual. And then the the other thing that I'm really big on is, is obviously networking, networking on LinkedIn with other people who do what I do or who do things that I want to learn how to do. Twitter is actually a, a huge platform for open source intelligence professionals so hopping on twitter and finding these people that you can connect with the open source community what i love about it so much is that there's not there's not a closed door everybody is willing to share their their knowledge their techniques their their mindset in order to help others move forward in in, whether it's investigations or just in a career path that you're looking for. So I was fortunate at the, at the beginning of my, my time with the human trafficking team, I was fortunate to take a SANS Institute class in beginning open source intelligence analysis. And in that class, I met Micah Hoffman. He was my instructor for the class. Micah is the president of OSINT Curious and has become a, a great friend of mine. I've always considered him a mentor. So through Curious, which is another podcast it's also a website where they this this conglomerate of open source gurus from all over the world who have background in in whether it's law enforcement or military intelligence or private companies and, and threat intelligence they come together to teach skills and and they do, you know, 10-minute tips, and they do blog posts, and just an enormous amount of information to share. So I love to seek out all of these sources, whether it's training that I find through law enforcement avenues. I think like Endicac has has open source intelligence classes, and, and our LA HIDA will offer them, so maybe folks will have different organizations in their part of the country that, that provide these different services. But then going out to the OSINT, the open source community itself, um, that's not law enforcement based. They're really just out there, whether it's investigative journalists or again whether it's private companies doing threat intel or security intel for executives these these folks are out here as kind of a separate entity and reaching out finding these people and and finding the resources that they're putting out there so networking has just been huge for me and and being willing to to take these trainings. So, you know, you had asked me yesterday when we were chatting what, what my hobby is. My hobby is taking trainings. <laughs> I, do, I do it at night. I do it on the weekends. I, I sign up for virtual conferences. I listen to podcasts in the car. I listen to you. and And just trying to gather as much information as I can about these different skills, because I may not need it right now, but there's going to be that case where something that I have learned in one of these avenues that that I went down is going to help me in this case.
1: Yeah. Well, part of being a great analyst is being a great student. So you are yeah. certainly hungry and eager and doing all you can to become a better analyst. So you're quite an inspiration.
0: Christine. Well, thank you. I call myself, thank you. I call myself a perpetual student and I <laughs> I always tell people I may not be the most polished analyst. I, I may not. I'm still, I'm still like, not young, but young in this career, but I I'm scrappy, Jason, I am scrappy <laughs> and, and I will do what needs to be done to, to find that information. And I think having that, just the desire to learn will, will, Take us as analysts where we want to be in this profession.
1: Yeah, well, I'll I'll make sure that Mindy doesn't call you the scrappy analyst either.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole lot better than being the 40-year-old analyst, I think. I'm not sure. (laughs) All
1: right. Very good, Christine. Our last segment to the show is Words to the World, and this is where I give the guests the last word. You can promote any idea that you wish. Christine, what are your words to the world?
0: My words to the world are actually stolen from a OSINT mentor of mine. His name is Nico Deckens. He is the co-founder of OSINT Curious. He's, He's known as Dutch OSINT Guy. Nico had talked about something on a podcast called nerd time, and I just completely took that to heart. Nerd time is never-ending research and development, and basically what he was talking about is making sure that we are taking time to constantly to, to train, to learn new things, to understand new programs or new avenues of ways that we can find the information that's going to help our department's We have to keep learning these new skills and adapting to changes because the criminals are going to keep getting better at what they're doing, so we need to get better, too.
1: Very good. Why leave every guest with? You've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. All right. (laughs) But I do appreciate you being on the show, Christine. Thank you so much. And you be safe.
0: Thank you so much, Jason. It was such an honor and pleasure to be here. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of analyst talk with jason elder you can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com if you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com till next time analysts keep talking